If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at uh, uh, a few things this morning. First of all, there are no Pastor Scott jokes. Uh, I want to keep my job. But I will ask you and implore you to pray for us as we go to Snowbird tomorrow. I've been taking groups to this camp for seven years. And last year was the first year that I've had to go to the emergency room with two students. And I had to do it two nights in a row. So we need your prayers. Uh, They have a standing rule at Snowbird. The number one rule is don't die. So we don't want to die. We don't even want to get hurt. So uh, you pray for us, uh, but more importantly, that we would encounter God in a fresh, new, and exciting way. Uh, But I am excited to be with you this morning, and uh, you pray for me as it's been a busy summer, uh, coming off Centrifuge Camp with the middle schoolers last week, preparing this week for a message and going to camp tomorrow. So, um, But you pray that I be removed um, now, and that... We're able to hear and see what the Lord has to say to us as his church. was a uh, uh, a man uh, who decided one time that it was time to lose some weight. And um, he thought to himself that, uh, you know, these donuts may be causing me uh, a little weight gain. And uh, he was a guy that took donuts every day to his workplace. And uh, he sort of got convicted and said, you know, I am going to stop eating these donuts. I'm even going to stop taking them to the office. And so he shared this story with his co-workers, and his co-workers were rather, you know, excited for him. They were sad that they weren't going to get the donuts, but they were uh, happy for him that uh, he has decided to take an action on losing some weight. Well... A couple weeks went by, three weeks went by, everything was going pretty good. And then all of a sudden, one day at work, the guy shows up with a big bag of donuts. And his co-workers looked at him and said, I thought you decided to go on a diet. He said, well, these are, these are special donuts. These are God-given donuts. And he said, well... You know, for so long, you resisted the temptation of going by that bakery every day and and passing by that temptation. What changed your mind? He said, well, one morning I woke up and I thought to myself, what if God wanted me to have a donut today? I believe I'll pray about God wanting me to have a donut today. So he prayed and he said, God, if you want me to have a donut today... I asked that you would make the front row parking place right in front of the door of the bakery available. And this co-worker said, well, did that happen? He said, you wouldn't believe it. It was a miracle. It was a miracle from the Lord. After I drove around eight times in the parking lot, <laughs> that parking place finally came available. Must have been the Lord's will. Must have. You know, sometimes we treat God's will like that. And we search and we seek God's will. Our journey in life is to find out what God's will for our life is. Well, I hope and pray this morning that we're able to understand that God's will for us is this, is that we, His people, who are called by His name, 
will live a life, a godly life, and a holy life in a godless society. Let's face it, church, America, our world, is on a slippery slope, and it's not sloping toward the Lord Jesus. It's sloping away from Christ. So in this passage of Scripture, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter gives us some encouragement. So if you would, in honor of God's Word, stand with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and hear the instruction of the Lord as to how we are to live godly lives in a godless world. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. And they were destined to do so. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would take these words and bring truth to our minds and into our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would do what I can't. That you would speak to the hearts of the folks in this room. And God, I pray that our response would be obedience. God, I pray that this morning, if there's one within the sound of my voice that knows you not, that does not have the free pardon of sin, that has not experienced salvation, Lord, that you would use this to speak to their heart that they might receive everlasting life and salvation. And for us this morning who are believers, I ask God that you would prick our hearts, encourage us with these words, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter is written to a group of Gentile Christians who were facing persecution from the Roman government. And so Peter gives them some encouraging words that will help them in their journey that I think will apply to us as well this morning. So there are two things that I want to point out about this passage of Scripture. The exhortations of being in Christ and the privileges of being in Christ. 
The exhortations and the privileges. Most of our time will be spent on the exhortations that Paul gives his readers. I mean, that Peter gives his readers. And uh, so we'll spend most of our time there and then move to the privileges. So the exhortations. What does that mean? That means to encourage. That means for us to, to be encouraged to, to do these things. To be motivated to do these things. So the first exhortation that I want us to, to see from the scripture this morning is simply to mortify the flesh. Look at verse 1 with me again if you would. It says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This, of course, is a prerequisite to uh, the next exhortation that we will talk about, which is to desire the work. So in order to desire the Word and receive its instructions and apply its principles to our life, first off, we must mortify, we must kill the flesh. We must put all flesh aside. We need to be in the act of mortifying our flesh this morning. Now this list is not comprehensive. It does list sins here that for the sake of this morning's message I want to define, but this list is not comprehensive. But listen to what malice means. Peter says, you know, you need to put malice aside. Malice is simply settled, overgrown anger. It may be that someone has said something to you or done something to you where you have not forgiven that person and you've allowed that anger and that resentment to build up into your life. And Peter calls it malice. And he says, that should have no place In the life of a believer, if we want to hear the word of the Lord, malice cannot have or be a part of our life. Malice. And then secondly, he says deceit. Deceit is anything that is opposed to truth. Not only verbally, but do my actions point people to Christ or do they point people away from Christ? Are they an object lesson of the truth or are they they an object lesson of deceitfulness? Deceitfulness should not be a part of our life. We are to mortify that. We are to kill that. We are to get rid of that. Hypocrisy is simply appearing to be something that one is really not. Now, if you come to Men's Basketball League on Tuesday nights in the fall, you will see some hypocrisy because there are some guys that signed up for basketball who are really not basketball players. I'm one of them, used to be, but no more. Hypocrisy, posing to be something that you're not. Maybe you pose to be something here at church and at work, but you may be different at home. Hypocrisy, get rid of it. Mortify the flesh. Next is envy, simply resenting another person's prosperity. And then lastly, uh, Peter lists slander, which is basically gossip or backbiting. These things ought not have part in a believer's life. Let's think about it for a second. Before I can truly desire the word, much less receive its instruction, am I holding a grudge against someone? Or my words or actions deceiving someone? Am I two-faced? Am I jealous of what my neighbor has? Do I talk about others behind their back? Peter says, get rid of these things. But like I said, this list is not comprehensive. In Colossians 3, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So in essence, we are to rid ourselves of these sins. We are to put them away. We are to mortify them. So what does that look like? I hate snakes. I hate dead snakes. I hate living snakes. I hate big snakes, and I hate little snakes. Some people have snakes in their house as pets. Y'all need to be committed. Something's wrong. <laughs> snakes are, are bad. They're just evil, you know? Well, when I was younger, way younger, as the story goes from my mom, couldn't even walk yet, uh, my mom was doing laundry. And way back then, she did not have a clothes dryer. She had a clothesline. Y'all remember clotheslines? You know, you take the wash out of the washing machine and go hang it on the line. Well, she was doing that one day, and she left the door, the back door opened to our house. And I'm laying there on the floor. And guess what comes slithering into the house? A snake comes slithering into the house. Now, I had no idea because I, I don't even remember the story. Mom is telling me this story. And I don't even know how the snake got out of the house because Mom, to this day, when she even sees a snake on television, she's going to scream and holler at night like she's had a nightmare. But somehow she got the snake out of the house. She shut the door to keep the snake out. Guys, we need to shut the door on mouths. It need not be a part of our spiritual house. We need to shut the door on hypocrisy. It need not be a part of our spiritual house. We need to shut the door on envy. We need to shut the door on the devil and keep him outside of our spiritual house. And we need to do what it takes to do so. But you know, we live in a world that tempts us. And sometimes that's just not reality. Some of us in here this morning may have things in our spiritual house that we have not shut the door on. What do we do then? I told this story to our youth group a few weeks back that when I was a teenager, playing basketball in my driveway, looked behind me because I saw something moving, and sure enough, it was a snake. It was a snake coming up. Uh, toward the driveway. I guess horrified from my experience as a baby, I run to the garage and I get a shovel. And I come back to the snake and it's crawling to the driveway. And I stand back and wham! I hit the snake on the head. And it's just jiggling and jiggling and jiggling. That snake's not dead. I hadn't killed it yet. So I really mean business this time. I turn the handle up to where all the sharp edge is on the snake and I go to town. Bam, bam, bam. I hit that thing a thousand times and finally the head of the snake was severed. It was off. It was killed. And now it couldn't drive. It couldn't crawl into the driveway because it was dead. Sometimes mortifying the flesh takes a repeated effort. Sometimes killing the flesh uh, takes time after time of denying ourselves of our flesh. So my heart and my prayer is this morning that maybe God shows us something in our flesh that we need to mortify, that we need to kill, that we need to shut the door on. James tells us in the first chapter a way to do it. He says, but each one of you is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So in order to mortify the flesh, 
we need to notice the progression of temptation. First, James lists the desire. You know, we live in a fallen world and we want to gratify, or we want to satisfy our flesh. And there are obvious temptations to, uh, to backbite or to, to slander, to gossip, or to do any of these sins that we've talked about this morning because our flesh is in a war with our spirit. There's this, a desire there. But what we need to do is shut the door in that desire. We need to chop the head off of that snake at the desire. We need to take every thought captive when it comes into our mind, when the temptation comes into our mind to sin. We need to cut it off right there. But unfortunately, we can allow these things to linger on and we don't fight the battle at the desire. We let it turn into the deception. And the deception is this, is that we, we, we tell ourselves it's okay. This sin is all right. Uh, no one's going to find out. And we talk ourselves into it. We deceive ourselves into disobedience. And disobedience is simply the act of neglecting to chop the head off the snake at desire and deception. At home now, when we are in a discussion or uh, we are dealing with our children, Molly and I will look at them and say, chop the head off the snake. Kill the snake. What is it this morning in your life that needs the head of the snake chopped off? We are exhorted in the scripture here to mortify the flesh. Jesus simply told us that if our right eye offends us, that we are to pluck it out. He told us if our right hand causes us to sin, to chop it off. He says we are to take drastic measures in order to mortify the flesh so that we're able to even desire the Word of God. We need to be in the act of mortifying and killing the flesh. A line in the song that I like to, to, to marinate on and to think about in spiritual battle is a song that is sung by Steve Green. It's called Enter In. And he says this, My spirit wars against my flesh in a struggle for control. My only hope is for surrender. So with each borrowed breath, I inhale the Spirit's will for me and die a deeper death. The exhortation to mortify the flesh. Secondly, we have an exhortation to desire the Word. Look at verses 2 and 3 again in our text. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now there are three things this morning that I want us to look at that helps us define what it means to desire the word of God. First this morning, to desire the word means that we are desperate for the word. To desire means we are desperate. John MacArthur says about this, he says, that long for is an imperative verb that commands believers to strongly desire or crave something. The Apostle Paul used the word seven times, and in each instance it expresses an intense, recurring, insatiable desire or passion. What are you desperate for this morning? What is an insatiable desire that you have. When Jane and Caroline were 
uh, young, uh, toddlers. I used to change their diapers. Matter of fact, I took pride in changing their first diaper. That soon wore off. Uh, but if they had a, a desire for their diaper to be changed, you know, I could help meet that need. Or I would rock them. Or I would uh, read to them or, or play with them. If they had those kind of desires, I could meet those desires for them. But there was one desire that I could not meet for them, and y'all know what it is. When they desired and were desperate for food, there was only one source that they could go to, and that certainly wasn't me. You know, when we're hungry... When, when there's an emptiness in our soul, when there's an emptiness in our being, when there's a feeling of lostness and, 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 and helplessness, there's only one thing that will really gratify and satisfy our need, and that is our desperate desire for God through His Word. Amen? You know, let's get real. We're desperate for things this morning, aren't we? I mean, I'm desperate to protect my family. I want to do what it takes to protect my family. And specifically this morning, I, I, I'm desperate to protect my daughter when it comes to dating. When she's 30. <laughs> and I heard a story at camp this past week as to how this might be accomplished. The camp pastor, Will Snipes, uh, told me a story of a friend of his back in South Carolina who was a prominent lawyer in his hometown. Very wealthy man, had daughters, and uh, he said he had a foolproof plan as to how to ensure that his daughters were going to date godly men. You know, I had that same desire. I pray that Caroline, when she starts dating, will date a godly guy, and then that that would lead to a godly marriage. So how, as a father, can I help ensure that? Well, this guy, this is what he did. He didn't even let him date. Sorry, Caroline. For a while. But he did let them go to like a prom or a formal or a semi-formal. And uh, so one time a young man asked one of his daughters out on a date. And uh, he agreed. And, but he said, before y'all go, y'all must come. He must come to the house to pick you up. I want to talk to him. So the young man comes to the house. And he asked the young man to come into the house and uh, sit on the other side of the table from him. And on the table uh, is uh, the deed to the house, deed to the cars, life insurance policy, wills, and all this sort of thing. And he looked at the young man. And he said, young man, do you understand something? That my daughter is way more important than all this stuff. Do you understand? He said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Getting a little nervous. Then he said, one more thing. I want you to stand up. And they were standing up face to face. And he said, all right, young man. I want you to touch me right now while you plan on touching my daughter tonight. <laughs> and this is what the young man did. <laughs> and I'm sitting there. I'm writing this stuff down. You know, wait, wait. He did what? He did what? But the thing is, we are desperate to protect our family. There are things that we are really desperate for this morning, but are we really desperate in comparison for the Word of God in our life? David Jeremiah says, we really don't know how to pray until we're desperate. Desperation. Is that something that defines your desire 
for God's word. Secondly, to desire the word means that we have surveyed its blessing and long for more. We have surveyed its blessing and we long for more. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. You see, the word of God brings joy in our life. We've surveyed that in the past, and we long for more. The Word of God brings us to be able to hear the voice of God. We've surveyed that in our past, and we long for more. The Word of God brings delight to our heart. We've surveyed that in the past, and we long for more. The Word of God brings victory in our life. We've surveyed that in our past, and we long for more. During the summer, our students have a program here called Summer Sports Spectacular. And it's a pretty cool program. We do it every summer. And uh, we divide the youth group up into four teams, four middle school teams, four high school teams, and they compete in different categories. And at the end of the summer, we award the winners. Two of the categories are this. Bring your Bible and memorize the assigned passage of Scripture. And always... Always, always, at the end of the competition, every single year, the team that wins is the team that has garnered the most points in bringing their Bible and memorizing Scripture. Victory in life directly corresponds to our desire for the Word of God and more of it. A third way that we define desire is that, we, meet, that it, the, we want to grow, meaning that we are unsatisfied with where we are right now in our spiritual journey. You see, some of us reach a level and say, you know, I don't need to grow anymore. I don't, I don't need to hunger for God's Word anymore. I don't need to, uh, to, to have it uh, application worked out and manifested in my life. I've, I've reached the plateau. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt. But there should never be that feeling amongst believers. There should always be the feeling of wanting more. There should always be the feeling of wanting to grow in our relationship to Christ. When Jane and Caroline were younger and we had our, our dinner time together, it was funny to watch their eating habits. Caroline would eat anything that we put on the table. Jay couldn't wait until we got till dessert. I mean, all he wanted was the dessert. So when Caroline, who was a good eater, stopped eating, we essentially knew something was wrong. And sure enough, the doctors would say, well, she's not healthy. She's sick. Church, if, if we are not hungering for the Word of God individually, then we are spiritually not healthy. And we need to check our spiritual temperature. We need to hunger and desire and thirst for the Word of God. So we are exhorted this morning to mortify the flesh. We are exhorted this morning to desire the Word. And last, we are exhorted this morning to live a holy life, a life of holiness. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Our personal holiness, number one, is demonstrated in the fact that we are aliens and foreigners in this land. Philippians 3, 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we so eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The preacher's homiletic commentary says that if you were citizens of this world, then you might drive the same trade with men of this world and follow the same lust. But seeing you are a chosen and called out of this world and invested into a new society made free of another city and therefore here but travelers passing through to your own country, it is very reasonable that there would be differences between you and this world. Are you an alien in this world? Are you simply a pilgrim passing through to the home that God has prepared for you? Or are we too comfortable in this world? Have we put on the world's clothes? Have we put on the world's feet and gotten comfortable in this world? Scripture tells us that in order for us to live a life of holiness, we need to realize that we are called out of this world to live as aliens and strangers in this place, to be of the world, but be in the world, but not of the world. This past week at camp, I saw a great illustration of what this meant. About almost the, the second to the last day of camp, uh, we're sitting in the cafeteria eating lunch, and in walks this young man, a youth, in a morph suit, a green, a bright green morph suit. Now, y'all know what a morph suit is? It's like one of these one, onesies. It's like a whole body onesie, you know? Covers your head, you can't, you know, it's just, and he was wearing shorts, thank the Lord. So, I mean, it was just like form-fitting, he was wearing this, and I thought, Wow, how, how cute, you know? And he comes into the lunchroom, and he sits beside people that he doesn't know, and he just sits there. Then he'll get up, and he'll move to another area, and he will sit with that person. And then he'll start doing stuff that might draw attention to himself. And I thought, you know, somebody really needs to help this young man. I believe I might go help him. This is getting old, you know? I thought it was just a prank. He, he, he lost the bed or something. But I don't even know if he got out of character overnight. And the next day at lunch, because we'd seen him around campus, he came back in the lunchroom, did the same thing. Got up on the stage in the cafeteria and was dancing. People were looking at him saying, man, that is just strange. That is just really weird. But it culminated for me that night, the last night of camp, we were singing at worship. And this young man in his green morph suit goes down to the front of the stage, right in front of the band, where everybody could see him and other people join him. And I thought, man, it's time to end this. You know, this, this has gone on long enough. Don't desecrate worship. After we sing, he goes back to his seat. Then Will Snipes, our camp pastor, comes up. And he says, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And he reads the verse about being an alien and a stranger in this land. And he calls a young man up on stage. And he calls the young man who was wearing the green morph suit. 
Turns out that Will had asked this young man to wear this suit for two days just to see what kind of response he would get. And the response that he got was this, that people alienated themselves from me. People did not want to talk to me. People, uh, they said I annoyed people. They said I was too different, that I really stood out. And then Will, the pastor, asked this question to us. He says, does your life make sense to unbelievers or does it stand out as different? Are we aliens in this world? Or are we too comfortable in this world? Our call to holiness is a call to be aliens in this foreign land, knowing that we are not home yet. Secondly, our personal holiness bears witness to the gospel. Our personal holiness bears witness to the gospel. Verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, we as believers are searched for not the good that we may do, but for the blemishes that people may find in us. It's just the the times that we live in. You know, some people take greater delight in looking at an eclipse for five minutes than to enjoy the light of the sun for a lifetime. I guess the question is, what is our life reflecting? What is our life reflecting? When I was six years old, I was in a church on a Sunday morning like this. And because my friends had made a decision for Jesus, or I thought, I felt left out. And so I walked the aisle of a church. And the pastor shook my hand and asked me if I wanted to be saved, and I said yes, and I was baptized. And then I just lived life as if, like, nothing happened. There's no transaction in my life. There was no change in my life. I was just who I was before I'd made a decision to walk the aisle of a church. But when I was around 14 years old, the Holy Spirit of God began to convict me of my sin. And the way that he did this was he sent a guy in, 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 in my life, and the youth group knows this, I've told this story to them before, by the name of Rock Collins. And Rock was uh, a football player, I was a football player, and, and uh, we were in the same grade, and so I got to view his life, I got to look at his life. And because Rock lived a life that reflected the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit started working in my life, telling me that I don't have what Rock has. In essence, the Holy Spirit used God, uh, used Rock to convict me of my sin because I saw the gospel message in his life. This past week at camp, I saw... Uh, uh, Will told us a story of a young Ukrainian boy that had just been adopted and he came to his school and Will went up to him and introduced himself and they struck a friendship 
The boy couldn't speak a whole lot of English, hardly any English at all. But they had a relationship, and, and Will was the track coach. And Will asked him, hey, would you like to run track? And in broken English, uh, the young boy said, yes, I'll, I'll run track. And so one day, they're getting ready to go to track practice, and Will opens the door to his car, and he lets the young man in. He turns the ignition on, and there's a song that's playing on the radio station that is a Christian song. It's not very an, an explicit kind of gospel message kind of song, but it was a song to where the boy could hear about Christ. And before he could, uh, Will could say anything about this song, the young man looked at Will and said, do you love Jesus? You see, I believe that that was Will's intent all along, not for the boy to ask him that question, but for Will to ask him that question. He was building a relationship with this Ukrainian so that he could ask this young man about his love for Jesus in hopes to winning him to faith in Christ. But this young man, I believe, already saw in Will's life a picture of the gospel and how it was reflected in the way that he talked and how it was reflected in the way that he acted towards people and how it was reflected in what he listened to and what he saw. It allowed the boy to see Christ in action. It allowed the boy to see a reflection of the gospel. And he asked him, do you love Jesus? Notice that he didn't ask him, do you go to church? He didn't ask him, do you read your Bible? Do you go to Sunday school? He asked him, do you love Jesus? I hope and I pray that when people look at me, like I looked at Rock Collins back when I was 14, that they see Jesus. Because when I was 15, after I surveyed the situation and I looked at his life, I realized my need for a Savior. And at 15, I gave my heart and my life to Christ. You know, I am many things. I am a husband, I'm a father, I'm a youth pastor. And I think those things are important for people to know about me. But the number one thing I want people to know about me is this, is that I love Jesus. You may be here and you may be a good businessman. You may be a good father. You may be a good husband. You may be a good coach. But when people look at you, is the first thing that they say about you is, Man, that person loves Jesus. That's what it means to live a life of holiness. So we've been exhorted this morning to, to mortify the flesh. We've been exhorted this morning to desire the word. We've been exhorted this morning to live a life of holiness, to bring us to the privileges of Christ. And briefly, we're going to look at the privileges of Christ, the first one being in verse 4, which is the first privilege is simply coming to Christ. Look at verse 4. It says, And coming to Him as a living stone which, you ha which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. It is coming to Christ that we are able to enjoy the other privileges that a relationship with Christ brings. And get this, we don't even initiate that process. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin that says, I am pursuing you. I am knocking on your heart's door so that you may receive me. 
so that you can understand the message of the gospel and respond in faith and trust. But coming to Christ is not even our initiation. What a privilege that God has chosen us to reveal the mystery of the gospel. I think about those who have never heard the message of Christ. And guys, it's right here in our hometown. I was in a home the other night following up on somebody that received Christ for salvation at our youth VBS. And I was talking with this young lady about this decision that she made. And then I turned to her parent and I looked at her parent and I said, do you know what I'm talking about? And then I proceeded to go through the gospel. I proceeded to go through that Jesus was God's son, and that he died on the cross, and that he was resurrected on the third day. I said, have you ever heard this? No. In our hometown, right here. We are so privileged that the gospel message has come to us so that we can come to him. Secondly, the second privilege is that we are in a living union with Christ. Verse 5 says, you yourselves are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What an awesome privilege, privilege to know is that we can be alive in Christ. And because he resurrected from the grave... Because he, when they took him off the cross and they put him in the tomb and they sealed the tomb and on the third day he burst forth from the tomb to say, I've conquered death, I've conquered sin, I've conquered the grave. And we, when we are united with him, we can be more than conquerors with Christ who loved us enough to die for us and be resurrected for us. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know, I know who holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. We are united with a living Christ. Third, we have a priestly access. Verse 5 goes on to say that we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. What does that mean? It means that we have the same access to God that what the Old Testament priest had. You see, the Old Testament priests are the ones that went into the Holy of Holies and offered sacrifices to God so that their people could be forgiven for their sins. Well, no longer do we have to go through a priest. We ourselves are a royal priesthood chosen by God so that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. And God has chosen us to do so. God has cleansed us from our sin as he cleansed the priests from their sin. He has clothed them in righteousness, and we are clothed in his righteousness. What a privilege to be clothed in the righteousness of God so that one day when we stand before God Almighty and he looks at us, Jesus is going to say, you know what? He's mine. I died for him. I died for her. They're clothed in my righteousness. And Jesus will say, come and enter, good and faithful servant. The next privilege that we have is our security in Christ. Verse 6 says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Life is unstable. It is so unstable. We don't even know what's going to happen 
when we walk out these doors. But I know what stable is. And that is our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know what life will bring our way, but we know we can make it through whatever because our security is not in our circumstances. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. Next, a privilege that we enjoy is illumination. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. No longer are we intellectually and morally in the dark. But because we have been illuminated, we can understand the mystery of the gospel and respond accordingly. And lastly, this morning... We have the privilege of mercy. Verse 10 says, For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This mercy rescues us from the judgments of hell and grants us eternal inheritance in heaven. And you know what else it does for us? It reminds us that it's new every morning. Because to be truthful with you this morning, there are times that I don't mortify the flesh. There are times that I really am not desperate for the Word of God. And to be truthful about it this morning, there are some times that my life is not a reflection of the gospel. And that I just get too comfortable in this world. But you know what mercy does? Mercy says, I'm here. I'm here. You can come and ask forgiveness, and I'll forgive you. God, who is rich in mercy, looks beyond our fault and sees our need. This morning, Maybe you need to know the privilege of Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never made that commitment to Him. You've never responded to the gospel. My hope and my prayer is, is that you receive Him as your Lord and Savior and you walk out these doors a new creation. If that's you this morning, we would love for you to come and respond to the invitation and have someone talk with you about what it means to be in Christ. But maybe you might be here this morning, you're a believer. And you've heard these exhortations, and you want to rely on the mercy of God and say, God, I have not really mortified my flesh. God, I've really not desired you like I should. And God, I've really not lived a life set apart for you. God, who is rich in mercy, is ready to receive you nonetheless. You may be here this morning, too, and, and you're longing for a church home and we would love to be that for you. We'd love for you to join Pitts Baptist Church. We'd love to be your family. But whatever the Lord is dealing with in your heart this morning, you simply be obedient to Him. And you won't be disappointed.